Hello? Hey, Sarah. So, good news. I got a job. What? <laughs> Yay, that's amazing. What is it? Well, um, I was thinking maybe I could tell you all about it for this week's podcast. <laughs> that sounds great. Welcome to another episode of Sundowners. Where's my wife? Long-distance conversations about architecture, place, and global travel. I'm John Golden. And I'm Sarah Rovang. But uh, before we get into my new job, so where are you, Sarah? What's, what's new with you? Well, I'm back in Paris now, but last week I was in Copenhagen, staying with a friend who is also one of your colleagues, and also traveling with a dear friend of mine from high school. Uh, it's a, such a small world, isn't it? Yeah, when you're traveling in Europe, it, it certainly seems to be. I mean, it's it's strange, actually, to be somewhere where I can just see friends without really trying too hard. Kind of unlike the Atacama Desert, then? Yeah, that's for sure. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was just nice to travel with two really lovely low-maintenance friends who were pretty much down for whatever industrial heritage adventures I had planned. And I'm also not just saying that because they're both friends of the pod. <laughs> Oh, were there any particular highlights, industrial heritage-wise? Well, we did get to see a demonstration of what was the largest diesel engine in the world for several decades. Okay, well, how, how was that? It was loud, um, and pretty odiferous, too, but also very intensely cool. I mean, this thing was seriously massive. Oh, that sounds cool. Were there any, any other highlights? Well, so after our daily industrial heritage outings, we also went to look at a lot of museums and palaces. I mean, I think I'm definitely good on Danish palace architecture for a while. But I would go back in a heartbeat to the Louisiana Museum of Art, which is just about 30 minutes north of Copenhagen. It's this gorgeous 1950s modern Danish architecture, and it has an incredible contemporary art collection. Oh, cool. Well, and how was the food in Copenhagen? I would say expensive, but also very satisfying. So we ended up going to the same porridge restaurant twice, and we also tried the Danish staple schmorbrod with that mysterious beverage, schnapps. <laughs> now that, that sounds pretty Nordic. There's nothing like <laughs> a porridge restaurant to really get my <laughs> hunger going. Um, anyway... <laughs> Well, enough about that. So tell me about your new job. What is it? Well, as of April 8th, I'll officially be a postdoc at the Los Alamos National Laboratories. Ah, so do they have a particle physics group? I mean, that's what you got your PhD in, so I guess that's what you'll be doing there? <laughs> well, um, that's where things actually get a little interesting. So actually, I'll be a postdoc in the Computational Earth Sciences Group. And even crazier, I'll actually be working on quantum computers. Whoa, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, well, the basic idea is that, you know, Los Alamos has a lot of very complicated problems it wants to solve. For example, scientists there might be tasked with modeling, you know, what would happen if an underground nuclear depository leaked. You know, where would the nuclear waste go? Would it spread to a nearby aquifer? And, and if so, could it enter our water supply? Oh, those seem like uh, good questions to know the answers to. 
Yeah, and I mean, obviously, the number one goal is for that to never happen. Um, but you also, you know, have to understand what would happen if if something went wrong. Um, and so this is one kind of problem that the computational earth sciences group tackles, you know, amongst many others. Um, and it turns out that actually coming up with accurate computer simulations of these kinds of things is is very difficult. And you know, Los Alamos has some of the most powerful computers in the world, but they're still actually not powerful enough to, to really get as accurate a picture as they want. And that's where the quantum computers come in? Right. And, you know, by now, I imagine most people have probably at least heard of quantum computers. And what about you, Sarah? You know, what, what comes to mind when you hear the phrase quantum computer? Oh, gosh. Well, I, I know that in a typical computer, information is stored as either zeros or ones, and that a quantum computer you can kind of um, have sort of a both and scenario where there's a superposition of zero and one. So it's both simultaneously. And uh, for reasons, uh, that makes the computer orders of magnitude more powerful. And I seem to have some vague recollection of you explaining to me why, from an informational perspective, it's so much easier to break a wine glass than to try to put all the little shards of glass from the wine glass back together. Um, And so maybe like a regular computer could only figure out how to break the wine glass, but then the quantum computer could figure out how to put it back together. I I don't know. Is that related at all? Yeah, no, definitely. And that's all, you know, definitely good, good stuff. I mean, so, so right. So one of the most important elements of quantum computing is, as, as you mentioned, the fact that the bits in the quantum computer, which are called qubits, uh, can simultaneously <laughs> be some combination of both zero and one at the same time. Um, this is that superposition you mentioned, and this is, of course, as opposed to a regular computer, which is just, you know, a list of zeros and ones that are definitely zero or definitely one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another crazy element of qubits is that they can be entangled, which is that super weird quantum mechanical thing where doing something to one qubit will instantaneously change or affect a different qubit. And that's significant because typically we think that information can only travel as fast as the speed of light, right? Well, not not quite. You know, actually, Einstein was famously put off by this idea of entanglement, and he called it spooky action at a distance. Uh, But it it turns out that actually no information is traveling faster than the speed of light between these entangled qubits. So that's not really where you get your additional speed for a quantum computer. Um, Instead, you can think of it a little bit more prosaically as, you know, in a regular computer, each bit is independent of all the other bits, right? So when the computer wants Mm -hmm. to update itself, it has to go through and check each bit and ask, you know, should this be a zero or a one? And every single time, right? So that, that takes a lot of time. But with entangled bits, your qubits, you know, if you're very clever and set up your entanglement well, you, know, you can actually make it so that, you know, you only have to update one or, or a few qubits and then all the rest will sort of magically fall into the right place. So that just kind of makes the bookkeeping element of computation a lot easier and, and can be quite powerful. And so when you combine these yeah. two unique properties of quantum computers, um, you can, yeah, as you mentioned, sort of solve problems that regular computers are, are very bad at. And this kind of gets to your point about putting back together a broken wine glass. As indeed, you know, a regular computer, to solve that problem, would basically have to look at each possible combination of all the shards of glass to see which one, which, which single combination, you know, forms a wine glass. 
Um, mm. But a, a quantum compu- computer can sort of simultaneously scan all of those different com- combinations at the same time and figure out the right one much quicker. Um, we can get into how that works a bit later, but for now, yeah, I think you, you definitely got a solid grasp on the, the quantum computing basics. And, and so, yeah, my, my new job will be to develop quantum algorithms that will hopefully answer really complicated questions about stuff going on in the Earth. Okay, so what exactly is a quantum algorithm? Well, I mean, an algorithm is basically just a recipe for how to solve a problem, and a quantum algorithm is an algorithm that can run on a quantum computer. Uh, But this is a bit different from programming a regular computer, since, you know, a regular computer follows that regular kind of logic that we're familiar with from everyday life. You know, the kind of regular if this, then that. But uh, Mm -hmm. quantum algorithms have to follow the rules of quantum mechanics, which, as we were just talking about, you know, can be very unintuitive, and, and things can be true and false at the same time. So you can't really design your algorithm in terms of if this, then that, since this and that might simultaneously be happening and not happening. You know, it, it all gets a little bit fuzzy. Yeah, I mean, with all that uncertainty, it seems really hard to ever get to any kind of concrete answer that you could find useful in the real world, right? Yeah, that's definitely true. And and this is why you're probably not going to be seeing quantum computers inside your iPhone anytime soon, or, or even ever, mm-hmm. honestly. Um, there are still some jobs that a regular computer is perfectly good at, and, you know, it's just a lot easier to work with. Um, sure. But still, I mean, there are some very clever ways to embrace that quantum uncertainty and solve problems much more efficiently with a quantum computer that, you know, you could basically never, ever solve with a regular computer. So, so let me give you a simple example. Okay. Let's say I handed you a phone book and the name and asked you what their phone number is. And that's, you know, pretty easy, right? Sure. Yeah, since since the phone book is sorted alphabetically, you could just look it up. Right, exactly. Um, but what if I gave you a phone number and asked you for the name of the person with that number? I mean, that's a lot harder, right? Yeah, right. I mean, there's, there's no order to the, the phone numbers in the phone book. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, so so basically the best you could do, or in other words, the most efficient algorithm you could follow is just to go through each person and look at their number and see if it matches the one you're looking for. Yikes. That, I mean, that's going to take forever, right? Yeah, exactly. And and the way computer scientists like to describe this is that, you know, if I gave you a phone number at random from a phone book with 100 names, on average, it would take about, you know, 50 steps to find who has that number. I mean, hopefully that, that makes sense. Yeah, that does. I mean, because the average of all the numbers between 1 and 100 tries it might take you would be 50. I mean, that, that seems like basic math. Right. And, and just so for a general, you know, phone book, it's going to take you about, you know, half the size of the phone book number of kind of checks to find any random phone number. Um, and right. I think it's pretty easy to convince yourself that there's no quicker way to do this since the phone mm-hmm. numbers are random, right? You just have to do, you know, what we call a brute force search and just check one by one. Um, but the crazy thing is that a quantum computer can actually do quite a bit better. And the way it works is that the quantum computer essentially guesses the answer at first. But since it's a quantum computer, it can create a single guess that is simultaneously a little mixture of all the names in the phone book. Whoa. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> what does that even mean? 
Yeah, no, I, I exactly. I mean, this is just that whole kind of unintuitive quantum mechanics thing. I mean, I remember back in my first quantum mechanics class in undergrad, we had this one philosophy major in the class who, who just kept asking the professor, but what does it mean? And, you know, all the professor could say was, he just got to trust the math. I think we're we're too stuck in our kind of human scale ways to wrap our heads around what life would be like as a subatomic particle. Oh, yeah, I guess so. So anyway, so the, the quantum computer guesses every answer at the same time. But what does that mean that it can check its guesses all at the same time? It, it's done like immediately when you do that? Uh, not, not quite. It's not, it's not that good. And honestly, you wouldn't really want it to, because I mean, that would actually be kind of cheating. That would be kind of similar to setting up a hundred regular computers to each check a single name in that phone book, you know, and you run all the checks at the same time and you get your answer back in one step as opposed to like the 50 that we were just talking about. But you know, no, there were still a hundred checks that happened. They just happened Mm -hmm. very close to each other in time. And it actually required, you know, a hundred computers, which is a lot of resources. Right. So what the quantum computer does is, is a bit different. So what it does is it, it sort of, it creates a kind of magnet, if you can think about it, like a, a, an information magnet, and that's attracted to the phone number you're looking for. And then the quantum computer takes that initial guess, which again is, is basically equal parts every name and number in the phone book, and it waves that magnet over the guess. And that's kind of one step or one check in the algorithm. And what the magnet okay. does is it kind of nudges the correct answer closer to the top of the pack. You know, the same way that, you know, a, a magnet waved over a pile of sand with a nail in it would kind of pull the nail a little bit closer out of the sand. Um, sure. So the, the guess is kind of changed. That initial um, big old guess, simultaneous guess of all the answers has now been modified a little bit so that the correct answer is a little bit more prominent, Right. And, and again, the core quantum part of this is that waving the magnet once lets you do a little bit of a, a check or a nudge on, on every name at the same time. But it doesn't immediately get you the right answer, though. It's, it's just kind of a little nudge. Yeah, that's right. You know, as the saying goes, there, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. But <laughs> in the case of the phone book with 100 names, it actually only takes 10 passes by this information magnet to find the number and bring the right name to the very top of the heap. So it's, oh. it's a little hard to explain why it takes exactly 10 guesses, and we'd have to get into some you know, quantum mechanics and some math for that. But on average, that's what it'll take. So while a normal person or computer would take 50 steps on average, as we discussed, to, to get to the right name. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's an improvement uh, by a factor of five, which sounds mm-hmm. pretty good. But actually, the, the benefits of the quantum algorithm get even better with larger phone books. So a phone book with a million names would take a regular computer... Half a million steps. Right. But it would actually only take a quantum computer on average 1,000 steps. Whoa. Okay, so that's definitely an improvement. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and, you know, this might seem like kind of an arbitrary problem, um, but it's actually amazing how many really hard problems at the end of the day boil down to some version of this brute force search. I mean, mm. this is basically the same thing as reconstructing a broken wine glass, right? I mean, you have to search through yeah. that long list of options, in this case, ways of recombining the glass shards, and find the right one. Um, you can also remember that original problem I described of modeling what would happen if a nuclear waste site started leaking into the ground. 
Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, what you have to do there is, you know, look at all the cracks in the rock and see which ones are easiest for the nuclear waste to get through. But, you know, in a real-world gigantic clump of rock underground, there might be trillions of possible combinations of cracks. You know, so figuring out where the waste would go is basically just a game of checking each and every one of those combinations and seeing which one is sort of easiest for the waste to travel through. So Mm. my job, you know, will be taking algorithms like this phone book one I described earlier and sort of modifying and improving them so they can solve more realistic problems. Yikes. It sounds like you've got your work cut out for you. And I I have to say, this seems like a bit of a change from your old particle physics days. Yeah, it certainly will be. I mean, honestly, I'm a bit surprised I got this job because this is not really my background. But I did want to change things up and and work on something more real world, you know, a little bit more applied than particle physics. And Mm -hmm. I think this will scratch that itch. And, you know, I am pretty familiar with quantum mechanics since that's, of course, at the heart of particle physics, too. So it's not a complete change. Um, yeah, and it'll be really interesting to learn about all the hydrology and other earth science stuff, too. I mean, that'll that'll be totally new. So, right. yeah, I'm excited to start this new chapter, and heck, uh, just pretty pumped to get a paycheck again. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> well, I'll second that. I mean, it will be nice to go back to being a dual-income household. So, when do you start work again? April 8th. Well, that's coming right up. So, how are you going to use your last two weeks of freedom? Well, the weather here is it's really full on spring now. So I'm trying to be outside as much as possible. You know, lots of golf and hiking and Ness and I went on this monster hike the other day from the house up to the top of the nearby Atalaya Mountain and back. And that was almost three thousand feet of vertical climb over nine miles. Uh so that was a pretty big one and I probably won't have as much time <laughs> for those once I'm back on the job. Right, probably not. I mean you've got to live it up right now and enjoy it. Oh, I am. So what's what's next on the docket for you? Well, later this week, I take a train to Frankfurt, and then I embark on my tour of industrial Germany. And also, we're working on a special two-parter podcast for next week. That's right. So uh, with that, we'll call it a week, a little short episode, but stay tuned for next week for our first part of our big two-parter. And as always, our theme music is by the Liminianas. Happy trails, listeners.